The following segment is part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolokali Arts Reach in Chicago. Ugh, Mom. I can't wash the dishes right now. I'm trying to listen to my podcast. Hey, it's me, Marie. And it's your boy, Emmanuel. And this is our podcast. Sit back as these Yolalicious frequencies melt your brain into sparkly, sonic, saucy sound soup. And as we tackle conversations that everybody and their mama is too scared to have, or you know, just chismear un poquito. Ugh, hey Marie. Ugh, hey Emmy. Marie girl, I got a little riddle for you. Oh geez. Oh, and shout out to Arturo for teaching me this too. So, what is the only population of people in the US that have a constitutional guarantee to healthcare and mental health resources? Hmm, I don't know. Girl, think harder, and no other people have universal guaranteed access to mental health care like they do. I'm stuck. I don't even know. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Prisoners. Prisoners are the only population in this country to have a constitutional guarantee to health care and mental health care. So to add on, what is then the biggest mental health hospital in the country? Oh my God. Does does that mean? Yup. Cook County Jail. For real? Girl, can you believe that this is the system that we have to deal with? It's the unequal opportunity to access mental health care for me, honey. Oof. A mess. So, previously we spoke with three mental health professionals, Sarah Taylor, Elizabeth Crisostomo, and Arturo Carrillo, and they told us a bit about what they do within the community. So Marie, what would you say is the importance of mental health resources like these in Little Village? I would say that it's extremely important to have resources that aren't external, like these resources were created by the community for the community, which I think is so refreshing to see, especially in times such as these, where we need each other the most. Founder and executive director of Yoise Eya, Sarah Taylor, also told us her take on the importance of mental health services such as Yoise Eya and teams like these, and why they're more necessary and in demand than ever. During this pandemic, we have reached 54 individuals, and that's because I had to put a cap on it. I guarantee you, if I hadn't put a cap, and we're only, with 12 of us in the organization, the total for only six of us to have mental health professional background. I can only imagine if we didn't put a cap on it. So it just shows that the mental health part has been exacerbated, which also shows that I'm sure mental health facilities across the city are being exhausted. A lot of times, we're not used to this bombardment of need. We're not, this is a crisis within a crisis, let's say that, which means that a lot of people, unfortunately, are getting brief short-term therapy which and sometimes some of them require long-term like you know hey you should have came to me earlier you already had anxiety and now anxiety has been exacerbated now we need medication but guess what i don't have the capacity to give you that treatment right now because i have 30 other people that need me right now so it's like we're playing a juggling act of the emergent needs versus those with mild low to moderate needs and that also can hurt a household or hurt an individual and feel neglected when they mostly need someone to talk to and to channel their emotions or a mental need. So we're playing a juggling act of which was an emergent need and putting them in the forefront, which is something we, we normally don't do in a mental health professional. So speaking about mental health in black and brown immigrant communities, what are some problems that the Chicago Latinx community are facing? Arturo Carrillo told us a bit about what he observed in his community growing up in Chicago, expressing the contrast in mental health resources then and today. 
I was born and raised to Mexican immigrant parents in South Chicago. So I, I had the experience of growing up in a working class community, low income community on the, on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, South Chicago is very disconnected from the rest of the city. It seems like not many people know about South Chicago, or if you do, you know, it's kind of like on its own little island. And so, you know, I grew up in, in a part of the city that was really, I didn't realize it till after I grew up and, you know, left for college and started, you know, working. I just realized South Chicago is really underserviced. It's a, it's a community that does not have the amount of resources and supports necessary for its residents, but people kind of make do with what they have. And so I guess I never realized the difference until, you know, I left uh, South Chicago. And uh, for example, when I went to, away for college, I went to U of I Champaign-Urbana and that was a whole nother world. It was seeing how the rest of people my age were living in, in the suburbs and in other parts of the city that had a lot more resources and that access to education and education opportunities. And so, you know, going from uh, being in my honors classes in high school on the south side of Chicago to walking into the University of Illinois and realizing when I was taking honors math, when I go to college at U of I, I end up in remedial math just because just the comparison, the stark contrast of this type of education people get in inner city Chicago as compared to like the suburbs or more affluent areas of the city. And then I was able to experience a semester in Europe and a semester in Italy and was able to travel through Europe. And, and again, and it was seeing how the rest of the world is, right? Seeing how other first world countries are actively investing in social needs and healthcare as a human right. And again, coming from America, we're, we're seeing access to healthcare as a privilege or, you know, something that's only available for certain classes of people. My first internship was working in St. Anthony Hospital's Community Wellness Program in, in Little Village. And being part of uh, the community in Little Village and working there as an intern and then subsequently later in my life as a staff, as a clinician, a therapist in that community, I, I didn't realize just the difference and the stark contrast uh, between you know parts of the city that may have I mean not a lot of resources but more resources than what South Chicago had but then of course you know later in my life I realized that compared to other parts of the city Little Village is also under-resourced right so for me it was it was always interesting just kind of as I evolved in, in my life experience to think about you know what access to care looks like what access to resources looks like for people who again would benefit from them and just like myself you know I think about how my life would have been different if I would have had maybe other resources in my life I wouldn't have struggled as much in many areas. Common before, but more prevalent than ever in an era of quarantining and COVID, many people, young and old, have been stressed and worried, isolated from the rest of the world and restrictions put on their day-to-day -day lives. Many are left balancing school, jobs, family, and so much more, accompanying the pandemic with anxiety, depression, and a widespread feeling of vulnerability. When asked how students specifically are dealing with these times, Elizabeth told us that, Honestly, it's been really hard. I think that all students right now are really really stressed out they're stressed out about things that already were in their way such as access to resources right opportunities job opportunities just meeting the expectation of what used to be happening in the school a lot of the stress right now is just based on survivalship a lot of our, our parents here and our caretakers are essential workers including a lot of youth as well and the accessibility to health care right has been hugely disproportionate so a lot of of our families and our youth have been getting the virus, which actually touches on complex trauma. Complex trauma is the cycle of being exposed to something that they can't control, which is just as 
traumatic as like a natural disaster, but except every single day since we've been in quarantine. And also I would say that there's a huge spike in like anxiety, you know, fearful of what's to come since we really don't know what's going to happen in the month, right? Or like in a week, are we going to shut down? Are we not? As well as depression too. You know, we're really isolated. A lot of my youth are severely depressed even before the pandemic. It's just made things worse. You know, we can't go anywhere. We can't even have a lot of us like a proper session because there's not enough time also, but like a private space and an opportunity to be vulnerable because of those things. And also a lot of responsibilities, a lot of the youth that I know are working and are also providing that caretaker role for their younger siblings and other children in the home. So I would say a combination of that complex trauma, a lot of anxiety of uncertainty and depression as well. Dealing with dancing barely above the poverty line, not affording food, housing, college, being of color or undocumented, juggling all these issues while trying to stay alive is something very prevalent in the Little Village community. Additionally, hostile family members, especially in the pandemic, while you're quarantined with them, some feel powerless and have no place to turn. As well as parents juggling with working from home, taking care of children, it has been a roller coaster of so many challenges. Sarah told us a bit about how parents were facing these times and how mental health differs between parents in regards to their roles in the household and the children and what they must be feeling. What I've noticed a lot in the Latino community is anxiety, the unknown. There's a lot of people providing food, a lot of food pantries, a lot of good munitions, a lot of movement and mobilization in getting people the resources. But as far as the emotional aspect of it, it's the anxiety because we don't know what's going to happen next. The Trump administration is still going on and still going on strong. It may be weakening itself little by little, but it's still leaving some anxiety residue. You know, I still feel unsure about this country. And I think the anxiety of what's unknown, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to sustain itself? Will the restaurant going to stay open? Like stuff like that, it's uncertain. We all know that Latinos, we come in from large households and since the pandemic and the quarantine, it's nice to say that we come from an household and may be fun, but quarantine in a, in, a, in a big household, it's a whole different ball game, especially for house in itself. The structure is small and we're used to living like that, but not for a long period of time. So what I always suggest families, especially those of families of color who are used to being confined in one space, that we have to find our safe spaces, whether it be in somewhere in the home or outside of the home. Regardless, there's a pandemic, we can't be in the streets, but there has to be homes that involve like environmental aspects that we can use to help us navigate that emotional, mental need. And a lot of the gender differences regarding the male in the home, he's expected to provide. And a lot of that has been jeopardized because of the pandemic and the quarantine. Now the woman feels guilty. It's like, I really can't help it interfere right here. And all I can do is be at home with my kids, but I also can't understand my kids' educational needs because that's not my first language. This is not what I do. This is not what I'm familiar with. So you're noticing a household with mom and dad or co-parenting are experiencing some, they're bumping heads, some tensions because their roles have changed and it kind of afflict their identity, their ego. Like, I'm not used to this. Now I'm being challenged in a different way, but I don't like it. I'm being challenged, but it's a forced kind of challenge, something that I'm not comfortable with. So a lot of the gender roles in a household are causing some tension and some uncomfortability is happening. Another major issue within the Latinx community is stigmas about mental health. It being something made up or common phrases that we've all heard a hundred times like you need to work harder, get off your phone, just ignore how you're feeling, on and on. 
or if you speak about how you're feeling or acknowledge it, people think you're a part of this new generation of kids that's finding excuses for everything. But older generations just might be ignoring their own personal problems and traumas, suffering in silence as they suppress it because of these so-called norms that are placed on our colored communities. A lot of times counseling is demonized, right? Like mental health is very stigmatized, especially in communities of color. It's definitely seen as something to have privilege to, right? Like, oh, that's like a white people thing. And it also comes to access. It's really hard to get mental health services wherever you go, especially in communities of color. There's nothing that really just grinds my gears. Like when parents say, oh, nada más le tienes que echar ganas. Like, what? <laughs> that one's like really gets the gold star right there. Or, uh, Estás mucho en tu mente, or dices trabajar, or dices uh, quitarte del teléfono. Like, that's not even why I'm depressed, bro. <laughs> I think it also comes to a normalization of trauma. Like, I think a lot of people of color, and especially like in Latinx communities, like we normalize traumatic events. We say, oh, esa cosa que le pasó a esa persona, o oh, algo me pasó a mí. It's always underlined as something that happened, and that's it. But we don't really have time to look at the after effect, which is like the actual trauma risk. Response, it's very much swept under the rug. And I think that older people like señoras are like, no, eso es de locos. There is a huge stigma with the older peeps not buying into it when it's like, uh, maybe grandma, you are also depressed. Or maybe grandma, like you have anxiety. Or actually grandma, like you went through a lot of trauma. For myself as a millennial, there are there is a lot of unresolved childhood trauma in our parents, especially based on survivalship. And I think that's really important once you are able to have those conversations if you can if you are safe to like exploring that with your parent and perhaps even like joining like a group is going to be very eye-opening because there's this notion of why can't you xyz like you have all these things that i didn't have as a child i when i was you know seven i was herding a mountain of goats and it's like those are not the same things like we're not going through the same like struggles and like you were robbed of your childhood because of survival shit because of all, all these other systems that were in place that that targeted you and like let's do something about it to also address like the grief there's a lot of grief in our community right now and, and even around things of of the past as well Another big issue that affects so many, especially in our communities, is structural violence and how a system can perpetuate trauma in our very own environment. Furthermore, there's much more to heal and fix in our communities. The biggest question, why do black and brown communities have so little mental health resources? What has to happen for our community to receive the healthcare facilities and professionals it so rightfully deserves? An assessment of mental health needs and access barriers in predominantly Latinx community areas were collected in the 2018 report, Uplifting Voices to Create New Alternatives, Documenting the Mental Health Crisis for Adults on Chicago's Southwest Side, a study coordinated by Arturo Carrillo in collaboration with many other mental health professionals and community-based organizations. They surveyed over 2,800 primarily Latinx adults from 10 community areas, of those including Little Village and Pilsen, to collect quantitative data on their most pressing emotional needs, desire to accessing professional mental health services, and the barriers to accessing professional mental health services. I was already enrolled in a PhD program. I was doing community research and within a very collaborative working space, we all developed an initiative to do a, a wide scale community research project that started from Pilsen down to West Lawn, right? So all the Southwest side neighborhoods, we worked with different organizations. What we found was the overwhelming majority of people 
were dealing with some form of depression, followed by anxiety, acculturation stress, following other mental health needs that people identified and, and relationship needs and parenting needs. The second question, we found that when we asked people if they were interested in seeking mental health supports, 80% of the respondents said yes or probably yes. And our third question was, what are the things that are keeping you from accessing those services? And so we put 10 different things on the list and 57% of the people said cost. The lowest ranked barriers were stigma. Esos servicios no servirían para nada was the other option, right? It was like, esos servicios son para locos, which we consider stigma. And then finally, the lowest rated barrier was my partner or my family would not approve. Arturo then elaborated in further detail what concerns these statistics present. When I was a clinician offering free mental health services in Spanish that are culturally attuned, that are responsive to people's cultural understanding, their religious understanding, their personal understanding, we always had a wait list of people looking for mental health services. And now I was working with predominantly women at the time, but over time I saw that even the number of men we were serving were increasing over time. And in practice, I was seeing that we had a lot of people and we just did not have enough therapists. And over the years, the more therapists I would hire through the program, our wait list did not drop at all. More people were coming in and if you had more therapists, I just meant more people were being seen, but not necessarily that we were addressing the overwhelming demand, right? There was so much interest in getting support. So what that took me to ask the question of what is it, how is it that we as community advocates, as social workers, as community residents can really sit with the question of what is it that's limiting people's access to mental health services? So what was really interesting though in our findings is that when we broke down the percentages, not only that people would be interested in mental health services, but they almost all are interested in accessing mental health services. So when you have a demand that large, it clicked for me, right? This is why we always had a wait list, right? There is that many people who are actively interested in professional mental health services. And we were really clear for us, it's about serving what people desire to access professional mental health services. Because I always think about it this way, right? If you're uninsured, if you don't have access to a doctor, you may go to a curandera, you may go to a botanica to get some sort of treatment by a non-professional or community professional, however you want to name it, but not a medical doctor. If you don't have health insurance, you won't see a medical doctor unless you're going to the emergency department at which point then you're seeing probably a doctor way too late. Again, not to say there's no benefits to curanderas or botanicas, but what happens is when people are not offered a choice to choose, when things are being chosen for you, right? When you're saying you don't have the right to see a doctor, you can only kind of lascarte con tus propias uñas, como diríamos, then unfortunately that to me is a very problematic thing. If I'm given access to a doctor and I choose to go other routes, then that's absolutely fine. So for us to say in this survey, would you choose to go to a professional and you have 80% of people saying yes or probably yes, then to me, this changes the entire paradigm. It's not that people are not wanting to go. It's that maybe they're not given the choice. So that led to our third question. And we found that cost, lack of health insurance, not knowing where to go, and no services not being in my area, in my neighborhood, were the top four barriers. So we call those the structural barriers. That's the way the system is set up to keep people from accessing the care they need, right? Because if you have money, if you have health insurance, and if you live in a wealthy community, you will have access to mental health services. If you don't have any of those options, then again, you're going to be left to figure it out on your own. We found that stigma was not the barrier. It was affordability, the lack of accessing your community. And so if people are saying there's no therapist in your neighborhood, then where are the therapists in Chicago? Where are the social workers who graduated with me working now? And what we found is when we mapped out every therapist in the city of Chicago, we found that certain areas of the city have an enormous density of therapists 
23% of Chicago's residents live in communities that have four therapists per 1,000 community residents. So those 23% of the residents live in the most affluent communities in Chicago. The poorest communities of Chicago have a ratio of 0.2 therapists per 1,000 community residents. 77% of the city's residents who live in lower income communities have the choice of 0.2 therapists per 1,000 community residents, whereas people who live in more affluent communities have four therapists per 1,000 community residents. So that disparity to me speaks to what in academia we would call structural violence, right? This is the way the system is set up to give access and benefit one segment of the population and not the other, and that causes harm in people's lives. Moving into our final topics, questioning in what ways we can improve the problems of healthcare in the community and source out more mental health facilities and resources for our communities. How can we do that? And how can we normalize mental health? Child, these are some big questions that need some answering. Now, we obviously won't have the answer to these questions in our little itty bitty podcast, but we can definitely start conversations to think about these things. How are we perpetuating trauma and keeping stigmas about mental health alive? Or even something as simple as avoiding our own emotions. Aside from the obvious need of funds and healthcare, we need to have more conversations with our families and our community about normalizing mental health and how some trauma that is still happening to us as people of color and low income that are affecting us. The more we avoid and look away, it's not going to be addressed. We're disadvantaged enough as it is because of a society that oppresses people of color, such as our beautiful selves, and gives us last place to any race because we're low income. And those I can get through this by myself and pues lo que pasa pasa mentalities, let those types of traumas be overlooked and continue. We need to see these traumas for what they are, have these conversations about how to better one another, and lose these mentalities. We are a community of resilient people. We deserve so much more than carrying ourselves from our bootstraps. Side note, can you use your friends as a support system? Yes, sir. Can you use your friends as a therapist and mindlessly scroll through Instagram as a coping method? Ooh, No, no you cannot. Some people think that they become TikTok, Instagram certified therapists when in all reality, it's truly just overanalyzing, overintellectualizing and such. If you're confused about something, please go to a medical professional, not a dancing influencer who's only doing that because they recently got a sponsorship by a meditating app, detoxing teas or waist trainers. Girl, don't do it. It's not worth it. Unless of course you're an actual therapist or social worker, which in that case, carry on. Overall, the most impactful thing you can do is check up on people. Look out for your family and friends, uplift those in need, be the change you want to see in your community. It all starts with just you, because individuals together are what make up a community. We need to challenge ourselves by asking them deep questions and taking care of ourselves. You gotta love you. And our final thoughts. In the words of Heavenly BTS's RM, no matter who you are, where you're from, your skin color, your gender identity, just speak yourself. Find your name and find your voice by speaking yourself. And in the words of La Miki Minash, it's quiet, ain't no back talk. Thanks for joining us in this rejuvenating conversation about mental health. And don't forget to tell your mama, tell your granny, tell your daddy, your sister, your brothers, your cousins, your teachers, neighbors, friends, all about what you've learned today and educate others. And that's all. Period. 
This segment is a part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolokali Art Street in Chicago. The content was produced by Marie Meraz, Emmanuel Ramirez, Alex Arriaga, and Amanda Tagade. Edited by Emmanuel Ramirez and Marie Meraz. Ugh, I can't believe my podcast is over, Mom. I'm still not washing those dishes. What up? It's Marie again. And Emmanuel. That's it for today. Time to cut the cameras. You can leave now. I'm out of here. I gotta go take care of my mental health. But no, in all seriousness, we also want to give a huge thanks and shout out to our listeners today and our special guests, Sarah, Elizabeth, and Arturo. You can find them on their socials at Yosoella Inc. at Enlace.Chicago and CollaborativeForCommunityWellness.org. And don't forget to follow Yolo Cali and Lumpin' Radio on all the socials, honey. We also want to give the biggest shout out to our City Bureau collaborators. Oh my God. Yes. Thank you so much, Alex and Amanda. And special thanks to Sarah, Bettina, and Stephanie.